good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. back to horror queers we're talking infantilization we're talking oscar winning horror and we're talking i am mrs de winter now and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking queer coded housekeepers feeling up their dead mistresses negligees this is true <laughs> there's a lot of words for me to get out <laughs> It's so thin, you can see my hand through it. Oh, man. We are talking Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, everybody. And Wait, it... is he the original Blumhouse? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, uh, you will not find his name uh, before the title because he does not really view this film his own. Nevertheless, this is our, I mean, this is our first Hitchcock film, right? This is true. Yeah. What a weird year. This is the first year that we're covering Dario Argento and the first year we're covering Alfred Hitchcock. And the first year we did Hammer Horror. Right, yeah. So big milestones here in year two. <laughs> Expect more from all of those. Uh, everyone, yeah, so this is um, this is Rebecca, and it is an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's famed novel. Now, if you're looking at this and you're like, Trace and Joe, what the fuck? I've seen this book, and it looks like a Danielle Steele novel that I would buy at Kroger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. It does look like that, and I will not deny you that. But I will tell you that it's a very, very good book, and it definitely leans more into gothic horror than you would presume based on the cover um granted if you have the criterion blu-ray like <laughs> brush his shoulder i do it will definitely look more like a like a suspense horror film than the book does correct yeah uh unfortunately i think the book got the twilight version cover do you remember when twilight became like a big thing and then all of a sudden book publishers republish all of these literary classics with twilight inspired covers to try to lure in young girls yes but okay so i don't know which book you're looking at but the one i'm looking at is like it's like red fabric that's like bunched up like a blanket and just this big swooping r on the r for rebecca mm -hmm. oh, okay well that that came out before twilight but yes <laughs> i'm just suggesting it's the same kind of thing where you repackage something to try to make it more marketable to a new era which, which is ironic because de maurier hated it when people refer to this as a, as a romance novel because in her mind this was not romance and i don't even think that she thought that maxim and um well, <laughs> she who shall not be she named. She who shall not be named. So it's interesting. They, 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 she's commonly referred to as the second Mrs. De Winter, but right. in the film, they also refer to her as I. So you can mm -hmm. kind of go, it's not in the film, but I'm um, like the production, like Selznick and Hitchcock, like the character was referred to as I. Um, but yeah, I don't think de Maurier views them as having a happy relationship after the events of this film. And the movie doesn't really d dis disclose what happens besides the opening narration, but the first two chapters of the novel are the end. It, it, it basically tells you what happens after Manderly burns down. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, it is the opening scene. <laughs> it is the opening. No, she has the dream last night. I went to, I dreamt I went to Manderly again, blah, blah, blah. It's like five pages of um, really intense exposition and like descriptions of Manderly. But then the second chapter is like basically how her and Maxim are like, 
settle down and just boring domesticated couple because <laughs> now that the mystery has gone from their relationship it's just well yeah that's what happens when the passive boring girl ends up like getting her man so oh i don't know well, i have more to say about I... that but yeah this is most certainly not a romance and particularly when you're reading it through contemporary eyes you're like holy shit this movie is gaslighting and abuse it's i mean even i so i had to read this book in high school it was one of my like required summer reading books when i was entering my freshman year of high school so i was like 14 when i read this and I, I didn't really pick up on it then, but holy shit, I did reread it uh, last month to prepare for this. And reading it and then watching this movie, I was just like, oh my god, I want to shake the second Mrs. DeWinter and be like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, leave this abusive relationship now. He is toxic. And he is an asshole. And like, holy granted, fuck. there are reasons as to why he behaves the way he does, but I don't view any of it as particularly forgivable. <laughs> No, absolutely not. This guy is the worst. Like, that was the message I left this movie with, is that Maxim is the true villain of Rebecca. I wrote, Maxim sucks, with like a bunch of U's in my notes at least absolutely. three times. Yes. Oh, my God. Just uh, bless Laurence Olivier for that pencil, mustache, and nothing else in this movie. So, okay, so before we go into the production, because, again, I, I, listeners, I'm aware that this is probably a movie that you may not be familiar with, and unfortunately, it's a little hard to track down uh, via streaming. We are covering it, though, because Netflix is releasing a new adaptation of the novel um, in, with Ben Wheatley directing uh, later this month. Mm-hmm. Look for that on Patreon. Yes, look for our coverage on that on Patreon, because it's, hopefully it's going to be good. Fingers crossed. I mean, our episode will be good. We don't know if the movie will be good. <laughs> this is correct, yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, this movie, as of now, isn't really available to stream, so check your local library, or honestly, buy this Criterion Blu-ray, because it is awesome. Very jacked, yeah. Well, there's like a, yeah, there's a bunch of shit, obviously, in the it's two discs, like, of, like stacked with features. But stacked with shit! Stacked with shit, Rebecca! Um, but the, 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 the booklet that it comes with, you know, it comes with your standard essays that they include in Criterion releases, but they also include, like, the correspondence between Hitchcock and producer David O. Selznick Ooh. and, like, their fights with each other. <laughs> <laughs> Juicy shit. There is literally a ten page, like, ten pages of Selznick's letter, which apparently he um, was uh, prone to write really long letters because he was actually um, a heavy user of Benzedrine, which is a brand of amphetamine that was marketed in the United States in the 30s. Um, I think it would pretty much be the... Uh, originator of Adderall. So he hmm. was kind of speeded out a lot. <laughs> Jeez. So yeah, there's like a 10 page letter to, uh, from Selznick to Hitchcock. That's basically say, so it, actually let, let's, let's go into this. So I was okay. going to say, yeah, you're talking around the issue that people don't maybe know about. Yeah. So, okay. Everyone, Rebecca is Hitchcock's first American, like first Hollywood film. You know, he did a bunch of like really good suspense films. He was called the master of murder in the UK and Selznick really wanted to bring him over, and um, this is, you know, 1940, I guess they're filming in 1939, so World yep. War II is about to start. Yeah, um, it was apparently like two weeks into this production that World War II started. Yeah, and so Hitchcock wanted to get out anyway to come over to the stage just for the safety of him and his family, and... So that was great, you know, and Selznick, if you don't know that name, he's basically mostly known for being the producer of Gone with the Wind. Um, he made sure that movie got as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say he's a super influential figure. He basically helped to define classical Hollywood. 
But what's interesting is though it's because the most the two most notable works of his are Gone with the Wind and Rebecca, and these are both two Best Picture winners. So his 1939 and 1940 are like back to back, like Selznick is the at the height of his career. <laughs> He's having a good couple of years. But he didn't really match that after Rebecca, whereas Hitchcock, you know, would in the 50s and 60s would go on and like become the Hitchcock we know today, right? It's so crazy that he wins the only like Oscar that he will really get. Um, he didn't win for best director for this film, but he did win best picture. It's the only one that he'll ever win. And then he goes on to have a better career than this. Well, and that's the, that's the funny thing though. So given their rivalry, um, which is what I'm going to get to next, but like Selznick, because the best picture winner, like the producer's the one who gets the Oscar for that. So Selznick actually got the Oscar for Rebecca and not yeah. Hitchcock. <laughs> That's just gotta suck. But Selznick's mantra was like, hey, if we're adapting like a really good work of literature, we don't change said good work of literature, which is also, again, why Gone with the Wind is like five hours long. I mean, I don't think it's five hours, but it's really long. (laughs) As someone who does a podcast that's literally on adaptations, I can tell you that is not the correct approach to take. Well, so that's the idea with Rebecca. So Hitchcock did a treatment for Rebecca, and he changed a lot of it. And so there is a 10-page letter from Selznick to Hitchcock that's basically saying... Hitchcock, you're a fucking idiot. Like, we don't take a classic novel that people love and we don't and we don't change it. Now, if it's a shitty novel and people don't love it, yeah, we can totally do that because that's what I did with and he like named some movie he like did. <laughs> but he's like, but this one we're not gonna fucking do that. So it was a really contentious thing because obviously, as we all know, Hitchcock is a very strict director. He's also a master of his craft, you know. Even this early-ish into his career, he he was very technologically fluent i guess is the phrase that i'll use sure yeah he knew exactly what he wanted to achieve he had the vision in mind like even the way that he shot movies was very specific because he knew exactly how he was gonna cut them and then get them out there and that doesn't work for people who don't recognize the genius yes so Basically, Hitchcock knew Du Maurier's brother, and at the time, unfortunately, he wasn't able to purchase the rights to the film because he couldn't afford it. So that's when, basically, when Selznick got this deal with him, they were like, cool, we're going to do it. And yes, Selznick demanded that the film remain extremely faithful to the novel. And this is meaning he wanted every scene from the novel on screen, which is why when the film starts, you'll notice that the phrase that they use is the picturization of Daphne Du Maurier's novel, Rebecca. Oh, God. Because it was literally supposed to be like, oh, it's the book in, in motion picture form. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay. So because of Hitchcock's initial treatment, which Selznick hated so much, uh, he was barred from the scripting process, which has never happened to him before. It's the only time in his career that this has happened. So because of that, Hitchcock banned Selznick from his set. <laughs> Petty, petty, petty. <laughs> um, his perfectionism, though, slowed production from the start. Like, within two weeks, the production of Rebecca was five days behind schedule. At some point, Selznick was even thrown by Hitchcock's methods so much that he began questioning his own judgment. He asked his wife, Irene Mayer. Now, that name might be important because she's actually the daughter of one of the mayors in Metro Goldwyn Mayer. He asked her to come by to look at some of the footage, which, like, he rarely did that, to be like, wait, is this bad? Should I cancel the movie? And she's like, no, dude, it's fucking great. Like, why are you (laughs) questioning this shit? (laughs) Stop stressing. Also, it should be important to note that apparently Selznick was having an affair with Miss Joan Fontaine, which is also part of the reason she got the role. Oh, dear. Yeah, I feel like I've heard a lot of this on You Must Remember This because David O. Selznick has like his own chapters in that podcast. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a bunch of gossip and stuff, but it's in my Criterion booklet. I'm going to count it as fact. (laughs) 
Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, really, that's kind of the bulk of the story. Um, the only other thing is that Hitchcock edited the film in camera, basically meaning that he shot the film in order and in and, and the way that he wanted the film to, like, have the final product because normally what the producer especially Selznick would do is go in and like re-edit the film after production was done so like so they, they would basically have final cut Hitchcock did everything he could to make sure that could not happen so that there was no extra footage that he could use that Selznick could like blend into the film and yeah really like the only other thing that was a big issue before the film actually gets released they did run into a few issues with the Hayes Code so um well Joe do you want to do you can you describe at all what the Hayes Code is? <laughs> uh, so the last time I tried to talk about the Hayes Code was when we were talking about the old Dark House, which is produced in the same era. Mm -hmm. And I got critiqued on social media for saying Hayes Code too often. Someone was like, you could make a drinking game of the number of times Jeff says this. <laughs> so I'm just going to invite people to go back and listen to that episode with our guest Kate Graham because uh, we talk about it in depth there. But basically, it's a morality code. Yeah, and so that is why, because of the Hayes Code and that morality clause, the big issue with Rebecca's novel is that Maxim de Winter does, in fact, kill Rebecca in the <gasps> book, and he doesn't go to jail for it. And that was a big no-no with the Hayes Code. They were like, hey, look, the book is totally fine. Um, a, you cannot hint at any lesbianism between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. That's right, right out. Uh, and we'll talk about that more later. A lot more later. A lot yeah. more later. But you also <laughs> cannot have Maxim kill her and not be punished. So it would be beneficial if you actually had it to where Rebecca did commit suicide. And so that is what happens in the film. And so... I would argue that it actually takes away a lot of the suspense of the last 30 minutes of the film, which, of course, is the inquest into Rebecca's revealed death. Mm -hmm. um, because now that we know he's not a murderer, then, like, what the fuck does it matter? <laughs> yeah, it's just a question of whether or not this romantic relationship will survive or, you know, the wrong man will go to jail. Right. And so that's really the only major change, and again, that is because of the Hayes Code. In regard to Mrs. Danvers... It's kind of weird. So, and we'll talk about this the two big scenes later in in the plot synopsis. But Hitchcock did kind of do some stuff to make Danvers's lesbianism more apparent, but it clearly went right by the Hayes Code office. But I did want to point out the one big difference between Mrs. Danvers and the film, and Mrs. Danvers and the novel. In the novel, Mrs. Danvers is the mother figure who raised Rebecca from her youth. And so she is basically the source of evil that existed in Rebecca. It's it's kind of implied that like her evil rubbed off on Rebecca. It's not, again, it's not really explicitly detailed. It's like a throwaway line of dialogue that Mrs. Danvers has. And she's older. Whereas in the film, Mrs. Danvers is a lot younger. Her past isn't revealed. And it's kind of, it's more implied that it's the opposite, where Rebecca is the source of evil that exists in Mrs. Danvers. And that will play a very important part when we talk about her lesbianism. I don't really have a lot more to say. I mean, again, listeners, if you want to know more, because I mean, it was a little bit daunting doing research for this film because there is so much information. I would, again, reiterate, please go check out this Criterion Blu-ray because it is stacked with so many things and there's just a, a plethora of information. I, I mean, I, I combed through maybe 75% of it. And I, I, it, it's just really, really fascinating stuff. It's almost one of the dangers of covering a very well-documented, well-known film is that the information that's out there about the film is so accessible. I mean, not accessible because you have to buy this Criterion Blu-ray, but um, <laughs> in terms of if you can get your hands on that blue, then yeah. you've got seemingly limitless amounts of information about the production and reception of this film. 
Exactly. Um, so before I throw it over to you, I'll just, again, just basic release information. Uh, Rebecca is released on April 12th, 1940. We've got a runtime of 130 minutes. We're looking at a budget of $1,285,000, and that is $500,000 over budget <laughs> Oops. in 1939 when it's filmed. It goes on to make $3 million in U.S. rentals and $1 million in Britain on its initial release. It was re-released in Britain in 1945 and made another $460,000. I know we talk about how on Rotten Tomatoes with older films there's not usually a lot of reviews. Um, this one has no less than 60 reviews, and we are looking at the rare 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. It's an average score of 8.87 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 8.2 out of 10. All, oh, I mean, obviously, letterbox didn't exist back then, but right. Yeah. <laughs> 1940s letterbox. <laughs> um, but again, th this film was widely praised. I mean, people fucking love this movie. So that positive reception is why it went on to be nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning two, one for Best Picture, and one for George Barnes's Cinematography. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it'll definitely make sense, especially when we talk about some of the um, visual effects in the film. Now, again, watching this film, you may be like, what visual effects? This was a technical marvel. Like, this was a huge deal in film production uh, in the sense that, like, a lot of it was rubbed off, uh, that was borrowed, I'll say, by uh, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. Unfortunately, it didn't win the Academy Award for visual effects. And that, that actually went to the movie The Thief of Baghdad in 1940 because those effects were more showy, whereas a lot of the effects in Rebecca are invisible which hmm. I would argue is more impressive, but whatever. <laughs> it's a contemporary costume Oscars where it's a, whoever makes the best period piece wins the Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, because the theme of Baghdad has like flying carpets and shit. So, you know, you're watching that right. in 1940, like, ooh, how are they flying? Whereas Rebecca, it's like, oh, they like cut off the top portion of the film and then painted a matte painting over it to make it look like a fucking dining hall. And like all of the shots of Manderley, right? Yeah, and the miniatures, the fire scene at the end. I mean, again, we'll talk about it, but like, yeah. there is a visual effects featurette on the Blu-ray that's like 17 minutes long, and it's quite fascinating. Again, just to be like, oh, right, like, they had to like do so much work back then to make films. <laughs> yep. I mean, not that you don't have to do work now, but it was just a different type. Yeah, a different kind of work that, you know, they just didn't have the advent of computers, so they had to do it in a completely different creative way. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's about all I have to say, Joe. So I think we can um, go on in this plot summary of what I have deemed backhanded compliments the movie. <laughs> uh, not wrong. Not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> After a voiceover tracking shot over the ruins of Manderley, Maxim de Winter, Laurence Olivier, is interrupted on the cliffs of Monte Carlo by an unnamed woman, played by Joan Fontaine. So this is actually something, too, where, um, because, I mean, I think that some people will have an issue with us calling this a horror film because it's, you know, not particularly horrifying and there's not really a ghost in it, even though Rebecca's ghost is implied throughout a lot of it. Mm -hmm. The big way that, I, I didn't even catch this on a first watch, but um, is that the camera actually acts as Rebecca's ghost for a lot yeah. of the film. This is the first moment, though, where we are actually looking at uh, at Maxim from below, from the sea, because this is now, I mean, even though this isn't the same place where she died, it's Rebecca's ghost looking on from her, her resting place in the sea. Mm -hmm. Well, we find out later that this is actually where she told him four days after they got married that she was a, a, <laughs> a psychopathic cunt. Um, yeah, the equivalent I, from 1940 of a psychopathic cunt who likes to sleep <laughs> with 
everyone and everything. I tweeted this and I was like, I love that Rebecca is this like fucking 1938 classic literature with a capital L where the twist is that the title character is a psychopathic evil cunt. I love it. It's so great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sociopaths are not a modern invention. Rebecca was doing it for 60 years. Well, it reminded me, did you ever see that movie Thoroughbreds that came out with Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy? I know of it. I haven't seen it. Well, so in that movie, Olivia Cook's character is a sociopath, but she's very aware of it. And so there's this right. whole scene where she tells Anya Taylor-Joy, like, about how, like, how she is and how she can't feel and how she has to pretend and act and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's what Rebecca did with Maxim. Uh, it's... Okay. Let's not get into it just yeah. yet. Go Because um, <laughs> I, have, I have thoughts. Like, it's so interesting that we have all these thoughts about a character that we never see who is only referred to. Like, that to me is the fascinating thing about this film. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, in the book and the movie, like, it's just, yeah, we never, ever, ever see Rebecca. And I do appreciate that Hitchcock didn't want to do a flashback to, like, where we see Rebecca. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Oh, well, it's funny, because, too, because on the thing, on the Blu-ray, they were like, I imagine that if they were going to do that, they would have cast Vivian Lee as Rebecca. And why is that funny, Trace? That is funny, because Lawrence Olivier was seeing Vivian Lee at the time, and again, Vivian Lee is coming off of Gone with the Wind, um, and he really wanted her to be the second Mrs. De Winter, and Hitchcock and Selznick were like, uh, no. So yeah. <laughs> Olivier was like a huge douchebag to Joan Fontaine <laughs> during the entire filming process. Yeah, and unfortunately, Hitchcock ended up using that against Joan Fontaine to make her performance more believable by suggesting that everyone on the set hated her, especially Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> it's really, because, well, and this is Joan Fontaine's star-making role. Like, she wasn't considered a bankable name before this, and honestly, if anything, her sister was, because her sister Olivia de Havilland was, was the famous one. Um, right. But of course, like I mean, that's a whole other story. They have a big sibling rivalry, and... Unfortunately, Joan Fontaine won everything before Olivia de Havilland did, so it made it even worse. But nevertheless, and granted, what Hitchcock did is is really shitty. Granted, Fontaine doesn't seem to have any ill will towards him because she's done interviews since where she speaks very highly of Hitchcock. Now, it could be an act, just, I mean, but she's also doing this after he's dead. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people can look up Hitchcock. I think we'll probably get into it a little bit more when we talk about some of his other films down the road. Mm-hmm. But he he was not a director who worked well with actors. He's famously known for calling them cattle. So they're just part of his process in terms of filmmaking. And while a lot of people end up having good working relationships with him, a lot of women don't have good working relationships with him. Well, but I mean, she clearly had, she was fine with it because she did work with him again on Suspicion just two years later for which she won her Best Actress Oscar. Though I would argue her performance in this movie is better because as shitty as what he did to her was, her performance in this film was fantastic. Which is interesting because it's not the kind of showy, like, I wonder if this film was released nowadays. Looking at you, Netflix version. (laughs) I don't think that this is the kind of role that would get acknowledged for awards because it's not showy in that way. Well, it's interesting too because I know how you feel about Lily James. So I wonder if she's even going to make an impression on you with this type of role. Sorry, who are you talking about? <laughs> it's like a vague haze in front of my eyes. No, I kid. I kid. Anyway, so we're anyway. at uh, we're at Monte Carlo. Yes, we are. We are at the Princess Hotel lobby, and we are introduced to Miss Van Hopper, who is played by Florence Bates. And uh, I love it, her. I everything about. I mean, I don't love. Like, she's a huge bitch. Oh yeah. 
That's what makes her great. <laughs> I love every everything she says is like this acid-tongued wit. And it's just so... I mean, and... Oh, God. It, it's so fun to watch her do this and also just make a fool of herself in front of Maxim. She actually reminds me, and this is not just because of the same last name, but she reminds me of like a Kathy Bates kind of performance where she's a larger, more mature woman who's got that acerbic wit and she just she almost walks over the other people in the cast. Like, when she's on screen, she's captivating. Yeah, 100%. Now, question for you. Mm-hmm. Does she want that Maxim de Winter D? Um, I don't think so. I really, I, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, it's 1939, 1940. Like, you gotta make do because there's nothing to really do. <laughs> This is true. Yes. I mean, society is all about having lunches, having drinks. Like, I was surprised that she invites him to her room for a drink, though. Like, I recognize that she is not young, but it's still a little forward for a woman to invite an unmarried man into her room. And that could also be because she wants people to talk about it. You know, oh, like Maxim de Winter went up to Mrs. Van Hopper's room and blah, 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 because she wants to be the subject of gossip. She is clearly a gossip hound. Well, I mean, her because most people in this movie talk relatively at a normal pace. She is, like, rapid fire. She just talks so fast because she has so many things to say. Yeah, she feels like she has been imported from a screwball romance, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) So she's great. And this woman, so sidebar for people who don't know Rebecca, I feel like we're making a lot of assumptions. The woman is never named. So you did say that she was referred to as I or the second Mrs. DeWinter. I'm just going to call her a bunch of different things and hopefully it'll be clear. But Trace, I'm putting you in charge of saying if I say she or her or something and you don't know which she or her I'm talking about. I just called her Joan in my notes. (laughs) God. (laughs) Well, the actress and the character are not interchangeable, sir. I'm aware of that, but I was tired of writing the second Mrs. DeWinter. (laughs) <laughs> but funny story, though, in, in Hitchcock's original treatment, he actually called her Daphne. And Selznick was Ooh. like, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I mean, there's a certain amount of autobiography written into this story, but we will get to that later. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> so this woman, played by Joan Fontaine, she is the paid companion to Mrs. Van Hopper, which means that she basically just does whatever Miss Van Hopper wants her to do to keep her engaged and interested so they see maxim they bring him over into conversation he is rude and aloof and (laughs) this woman our narrator is awkward and nervous as hell well and she's supposed to be like 21 years old now in the book maxim is double is twice her age so he's like 42 Um, i think they age him down a bit here where he's like in his late 30s or mid 30s there's clearly still a fairly significant age difference. Like, she does not have the life skills to engage with this man, (laughs) and there is no reason for her to be marrying him. But it is the 1940s. I'm sorry, marrying him after a couple car drives over the span of a few days. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, girl. I'm not going to suggest that you can't meet someone and fall in love and have this whirlwind romance that ends in marriage, but, like, just... Give it six months. Maybe move in together and see if you can cohabitate. Like, move to Manderley and then decide, like, oh, no, your housekeeper is creepy. I don't want to live here. I'm not going to marry you. But I think that's what's so subversive about this story. And what I think Daphne du Maurier was trying to get across, though, is that, look, this is stupid. They are not in love. This is not romance. And this is what happens when you marry someone that fast that you don't know. All the rest of this movie happens. (laughs) 
Yeah, I I did see a couple people refer to it as this is kind of taking the wind out of that fairy tale happily ever after. Like, this Mm -hmm. is what happens after the happily ever after, and it ain't good. I saw two comparisons, because this is considered an example of, like, of gothic, and gothic suspense, gothic horror, whatever you want to call it, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the romances, again, it's in the pursuit, the chase. So the romance of, like, if this was a true romance, it would be all the Monte Carlo stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I think the Monte Carlo stuff is the most fun. Oh, it 100% is. And it's also why with the Netflix remake, most of what the trailer is the Monte Carlo stuff. (laughs) Right. They're selling the romance. Don't you want to see Army Hammer with his shirt off in Monte Carlo? (laughs) But I mean, it it does take up about 30 minutes. Like It's the first 30 minutes of this movie is all the Monte Carlo stuff. This is true. But that also means we still have a lot to cover. So I'm going to move on. Yep. So Van Hopper is also ridiculous, as we've clarified. And... She's a good source of expository backstory. So she informs us that Maxim has a dead wife, that he's so sad and unhappy and that he can't be pinned down. And we also learn over time that our heroine has a dead family and that she has ingrained this message that if something good happens, she should latch onto it and never let go. To which I also say, girl, fuck off. But it's <laughs> like, 1940. Like, it's a very different time period. Um, yeah. fem- feminism is there, but it's not really <laughs> where it needs to be. Not in the format we're accustomed to. Yes. Correct. So almost immediately, they are falling in love over fake tennis dates under Van Hopper's nose. And she is smitten and he is bossy as fuck. Dude. Okay. I think the line where I first was like, oh, shit. Um, it's when he says, please promise me never to wear black satin or pearls or to be 36 years old. (laughs) Just classic old man to young girl behavior. It's really, and you're right though, because you mentioned infantilization in your prologue, and that's exactly what he does. He is like obsessed with the fact, now granted, it's because though he was married to a huge fucking bitch who... (laughs) I guess was too intelligent. So he's going after someone who is young and naive and yes. not, not that the second Mrs. De Winter is not intelligent, but she doesn't, like you said, she doesn't have that life experience and that's what attracts him to her as yeah. opposed to like her actual personality. <laughs> Which when you really start to think about it is so icky, right? Oh, it's like, gross. He doesn't, does he even like this woman or is he only attracted to her because he knows that she's not going to be Rebecca? Well, that's the thing, you know? And so, and like, I mean, uh, just really quick segue, like the book is told entirely from her point of view. Mm -hmm. So the reason it's almost 400 pages long is because a lot of it is her saying, Oh, it's her her paranoia. Like, Oh, what? Maybe this is going on. Maybe this is going on. Maybe this is going on. Oh, but if this happens and this is going to happen and this, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, bitch, shut up and just ask him something. (laughs) Yes. This whole story is a failure to communicate. 100%. (laughs) Everyone in it needs therapy and they need to open their fucking mouths and have a conversation. But then there would be no movie. (laughs) This is true. Yeah. This is how we get horror, right? Is from people who refuse to talk to each Dude, other. Dude, it kind of is, right? Like, again, like there's like, with any horror, especially slashes, people go, well, if you just did this, you'd solve your problem. Well, yeah, well, then there wouldn't be a movie. It's the same mm-hmm. thing here. Well, and also, let's be real. That's not what people do in real life either. People bury their emotions and just cover it up like garbage. And I fully believe a 21-year-old who is, again, not like a rich person would absolutely feel this way. And again, especially like when we get into the whole, like, oh, she's failing to live up to Rebecca because she thinks everyone adored Rebecca because everyone tells her that. Like, mm-hmm. You're going to believe it. Well, yeah, it's frustrating, but it's very, it's a very believable like 
arc. And particularly here, right? This is a girl who doesn't have anybody. She's being paid for companionship Mm -hmm. because she's trying to make her own way. And all of a sudden, this rich, hunky, older man is courting her. You're going to overlook all of the shit where he says stuff like, eat up like a good girl. I mean, look... (laughs) If Lawrence Olivia comes to me and says, hey, you want to get married and have sex with me all the time, I'm probably going to say yes. Sure. He's got a fucking palatial estate in the middle of nowhere with servants. Although I'm fairly certain they never fuck. Oh, I mean, this is a sexless movie. And I could not (laughs) tell if it was because they just don't like each other or because, again, 1940. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, so they are fallen in love, in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. The affair is abruptly threatened because Miss Van Hopper gets, basically, she's got a child who's going to get married. So they have to return to New York immediately. And Mm -hmm. at this point, this is 100% where you know that shit is not going to go well because the way that Maxim just casually asks her to be his wife and return to Mandalay is like, he could be ordering breakfast. But again, I think that's, again, that's Demore and the screenwriters taking down this whole notion of a fairy tale proposal. It's like, mm-hmm. no, like, let, I'll order some eggs and I'll order a ring for your finger. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, I would like eggs poached and a wife. And a wife on the side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In that order. The prioritization <laughs> is that order. Yes. So she does accept, and he tells her, I did like this part, he gets a little quiet and he tells her that he'll remind her of this conversation later, and that it's a pity that she'll have to grow up. And you can read the, it's a pity she'll have to grow up as a, ew, but also because he knows that what he's about to put her through is going to fucking ruin her. It's really, really fucked up. I mean, yeah, he's because he knows that he's miserable. He is still feeling like... He's always on edge because, again, his wife's corpse is in the bottom of the sea in a boat, and he's Mm -hmm. just waiting for it to get discovered. Yeah. And it's just like, dude, like, what the fuck? And then she doesn't get anything better from Mrs. Van Hopper because then Van Hopper's like, well, you don't think he's in love with you, right? And at first glance, it's like, oh, you're a real bitch. But she's also right. (laughs) She's trying to warn her. Like, I know you think that you're in love with this dude and that everything's going to be great and it's going to be a fairy tale. You are not cut out to be the lady of the house for mm-hmm. this dude. You are in over your head. Also, and, bye. I'm and, out of this movie. And she 100% is. And it's something, too, that it's just like, I mean, again, I'm sure things like this existed in movies around this time period. But it's just not what you would expect. And that's why, yeah, when someone calls this a romance, it's like, are you, are we watching yeah, the Yeah, what movie thing? are you watching? <laughs> My mother 100% showed me this movie and was like... People think that this is a romance. <laughs> I will tell you that the book, the book, the, the, the tagline for the book is the unsurpassed modern masterpiece of romantic suspense. Mm, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you got to sell books somehow. I think it's emphasis on suspense with like, it's like, oh, right. it, it, it's romantic ish in the sense that like the narrator thinks she's in love. <laughs> Oh, is the story being retold from Mrs. Danvers' point of view? Oh, my God. Because <laughs> then it's about romance. No, there's actually two sequels to this book that were written in, like, the 90s and, like, I think 2013 by, obviously, non-Daphne de Moria people. Boo. But there is, but it's sequels, like, and I think the, the second one's called, like, Mrs. De Winter. There's Boo. not one from Mrs. Danvers' perspective, and I would uh, kill what a, to a have that. a lost opportunity. <laughs> 
I want Mrs. Danvers and I want Robert's perspective. Oh, yes. Robert and Frith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they gay, right? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Immediately, the couple is married and they drive in the rain to Manderley. This is a Hitchcock edition. Apparently, it's not rain, rainy in the book. Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the four changes in the book that I have. And it's only so that she would be shivering when she meets Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I think 100% works, because she shows up, she is freezing cold, she looks so small, particularly in the grandeur of Manderley, right? So they show up at this house, and the entire staff is waiting to welcome them, and she looks like a child. This is also, so two things about this scene. So one, this is another one of those matte painting things. So like, basically, the, the, the ceiling above the servants like, didn't exist. So ah, they like... Crazy black out that portion of the film reel and they do like they they just superimpose or something that's probably a better word for it <laughs> a matte painting of the ceiling over it so it looks like they're standing in this regal hall wow also the first shot we get of the staff it's kind of like a long shot from like kind of up in the ceiling yeah you cannot see mrs dammers in this shot and then the next shot is a close-up of the staff as mrs Danvers just enters from off screen it's technically a continuity error but it's also very much intentional on hitchcock's part to be like look this is your villain <laughs> right enter villainess <laughs> i i do love i saw somebody and i didn't click for me until i thought back of it that you often don't see mrs danvers walk because she's meant to appear as though she's almost gliding because really like a lot of this is framed from the second mrs de winter's point of view so right. she's so intimidated by mrs danvers that this woman just seems to constantly be creeping up on her or magically appearing or moving from one place to another mysteriously see i didn't catch that but that's now i want to rewatch it looking at that i did catch that she doesn't blink like hitchcock directed her not to blink as much as possible during her scenes mm -hmm. to give her like you know the eyes staring daggers oh so intense yeah mm -hmm. we should note that mrs danvers is played by judith anderson and she was nominated for an oscar for this performance yes did not win unfortunately but um she uh Ooh, she, I mean, I mean, she's probably in less than a fifth of the film, and she walks away with the movie. Oh my god, she's so memorable. I mean, like, when people talk about this movie, they talk about Miss Dammers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And she'll, she'll get her showcase in due time. <laughs> Indeed. So she does take sadistic delight in reinforcing traditions and constantly reminding the new Mrs. De Winter of her predecessor. And I will say one of my favorite shots in this is when Mrs. Danvers is kind of saying like, okay, so this is how it would normally go. This is where you would walk. This is the timetable that you would keep to. And there's the scene where you see the second Mrs. De Winters sort of very uh, like skittishly walking down the hall and you just see Miss Danvers walking behind her and it yes. looks like she is stalking her. <laughs> no, it's really creepy because I was like, wait, is, is she, oh, because it's when she's going to the West Wing, isn't she? Mm -hmm. Like she's going to look at the, uh, she, uh, she, she's not there yet, but she's like, she's contemplating going into the West Wing, which well, <laughs> whenever I hear West Wing, I always think about Beauty and the Beast because that's also the, the wing in that castle that's forbidden to go to. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. Don't ever go to the West Wing. Everybody's got the West Wing off limits. It always sucks. It's always terrible. It's always haunted. Yeah, and I, I also, cause my backhanded compliments thing earlier, I was like, that's all Mrs. Danvers does before she reveals her true colors. Mm -hmm. It's constant, like, undercutting of the second Mrs. De Winter. This whole, it's these things that sound like compliments, but you're like, wait a minute, that's not a compliment. That's... 
you're really like trying to take this bitch down a peck. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 I love it, right? Because as a servant, this is all that she's capable of because you can't cross the new mistress of the house. Mm-mm. But it's so evident that Miss Danvers has no respect for this woman. She looks mm-hmm. at her, she sees this young thing that is coming in to usurp the memory of the woman that she fucking loves. And all she can do is give her platitudes and pleasantries. So she just like laces it all with venom. It's and it's a delicious divine performance. And even uh, the way that Mrs. Great. Danvers looks, you know, her hair pulled back, like mm-hmm. skin pulled back tight. Like it, she looks very menacing from the get go. Yeah, I'm so glad that we never see her with her hair down. As oh, people yeah. know, I'm a big hair person. It's important that her hair looks always polished, but always severe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so let's meet some new characters. In the morning, we're introduced to estate manager Crawley, who is played by Reginald Denny. And we also meet the housekeeper, Frith, who is played by Edward Fielding. And Frith, hmm, he's in a tough position, too, because he is so desperately trying to help the new Mrs. De Winter, mm-hmm. but he also just continually confirms how out of her depth she is. Like she doesn't know the lay of the house. She doesn't know what to do when, and he keeps trying to guide her, but he's making her increasingly more nervous to the point where at one incident, she accidentally breaks a China Cupid and is so worried that she fucking hides it in a drawer and covers it with papers. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, Fontaine does all this where it's like, you you can see how nervous she is constantly. And it makes the point later in the film when she does like take control. It's just so cathartic, but yeah, it's again, it's just one of those things where you're like, Oh my God, girl, like you are the mistress of this house, like yeah. own it around. But yeah, everything is like, Oh, like however um, Rebecca did it. That's totally fine. Oh my God. The stuff with the sauce for lunch. Oh, <laughs> yes <laughs> girl you can have an opinion about the sauce <laughs> i also like i don't know if you caught this this is one weird technical aspect that i didn't notice apparently whenever they say rebecca's name and this is um noticeable at the 33 39 44 48 and two hours and three minute mark <laughs> okay wikipedia a brief otherworldly appearance of the hammond nova chord appears on the soundtrack this first commercial polyphonic synthesizer is considered the grandfather of all modern synthesizers and eventually managed to find its home in later science fiction and suspense movies due to its unique sound. So basically what you're saying is we be breaking the synth barrier here? Pretty much. And it's supposed to cue you way ahead of time that Rebecca is not as nice as she's uh, made out to be. Yeah, because if you've never seen this film, you really do think that this meek new woman is just being eclipsed by this powerful presence that everyone loved. Like, that's what you take away. And then after you've seen it once, you realize, oh, everybody's just lying to you. People didn't actually like this woman. Well, that's why. I mean, again, like, because it, when you're watching it or even reading it, people, like, whenever she asks about Rebecca, everyone's so hesitant. And right. it's because, like, I mean, Beatrice especially, who's Maxim's sister, they all knew. But granted, everyone else in the world did not because Rebecca put on, like, these polite airs. Like, she was good mm-hmm. at faking being perfect. Right. But all these other people in the service, especially, they knew. And the, the second Mrs. DeWinter takes that as, oh, they just miss her so dearly, they can't bear to talk about her, thereby making her insecurities even more intense. But mm-hmm. really, it's just like, oh, she was kind of a bitch, but we don't really want to say that. 
Yeah, she was the subject of much gossip around town, but we can't comment on it. It's also important to note it's only been a year, right? So right. the the specter of this dead woman is still looming large. It's not like Maxim has been a widower for 10 years or something. Well, and, and that's really, I mean, that's what Manderly is. It's just the house of Rebecca's ghost. Now, of course, we don't actually get her ghost. There's no actual specters in the film. But a lot of times, as I mentioned earlier, when the camera is following someone, especially if it's in Rebecca's own room which she did not share with maxim mm-hmm. um it's meant to be her ghost like walking around the, the halls of manderley yeah and i actually managed to find an interesting quote from a woman named Rana j berenstein from a piece called adaptation censorship and audiences of questionable type lesbian sightings in rebecca and the uninvited <laughs> and Basically, I'm just going to quote, like, broadly. I know I love the title, right? Uh, lesbian sightings. Like, we're, there's, like, hidden lesbians in the film. More or less. Ooh, what's that behind the curtain? Lesbian! <laughs> so, Berenstein says that the horror genre is a primary arena for sexualities and practices that fall outside the purview of patriarchal culture and the subgeneric tropes of the unseen, the ghost, and the haunted house. So portraying lesbians as ghosts in Hollywood movies is then directly linked to the cultural attitudes and anxieties about homosexuality. So the lesbian is a paradoxical figure. She is an invisible yet representational threat. And really, like, Manderley is Rebecca is this lesbian ghost that just lurks over the entire production. You had mentioned this to me yesterday, and I I replied that I had always viewed Rebecca as asexual, and I'm walking back on that, again, after doing some more research and watching, but I think when we get to later stuff, we can maybe comment on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. We're almost there. Yeah. So coming back to Maxim's sister, Beatrice Lacey, she is played by Gladys Cooper, and she has a husband named Giles, who is a big fucking oaf. He's played by Nigel Bruce. They show up for lunch, and it's a really awkward lunch. (laughs) Particularly, I mean, I actually kind of like Beatrice because she's a bit of a... She's meant to be a truth teller. She has no tact. Yeah, Um... like, she's... She could be perceived as bitchy because she doesn't hold her tongue, but I liked her candidness. Like, she just doesn't beat around the bush. She tells it like it is. Oh, yeah. She has that one line where she's like, I can see by the way you dress, you don't care a hoot about how you look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you're plain clothes. You're plain hair. <laughs> but this is when we get the first thing when she says about Mrs. Danvers. She goes, oh, oh, again, kind of an undercut, too, where she goes, oh, didn't you know? Well, I thought Maxim should have told you. She mm. simply adored Rebecca. And... Also, special effect thing. So when when she says this, Joan Fontaine's head turns and like you see Beatrice, like the, the lighting goes black on her. Yes. They filmed Beatrice and then they superimposed that on whatever screen was behind Joan Fontaine. So Joan Fontaine wasn't actually acting with Gladys Cooper. She's facing a screen so that when she turns, Hitchcock could dim the lights on the image. <sighs> And it's like, it's a great effect. It's the kind of thing where it's subtle enough that you could almost miss it. And yet it has a really good effect. Mm-hmm. I do love that. I mentioned earlier that I thought that this was like gaslighting the movie. And really, I'm going to also walk that back where I think it's mostly Maxim who is not being truthful. Like, yeah. Everyone else in this movie assumes that this woman knows what she has gotten into, which is a little ridiculous because you're like, uh, you live on a private estate that people gossip about, but not a lot of truths are known about. So, like, mm-hmm. why would you assume that this young woman who has never been to Manderley would know anything about Rebecca? Neither here nor there. Yeah. But, like, clearly, 
this is a hint that it's like, oh, Maxim is also not a good guy. In case you didn't notice how he's bossing her around and treating her like a child, he's also clearly not telling her what is going on. Well, he can see how fucking stressed she is, and he has the key... (laughs) To make her not feel that way. Not even say, oh, like, I had a part in her death, maybe, kind of. But just to be like, oh, I never liked Rebecca. She was a bitch. Yeah, you could just say, oh, people have the wrong idea about her. She was not great. Yeah, exactly. But he doesn't, <laughs> because he's a, he's a poon. Yeah, well, he's so... I mean, I'm sure that there's some Proud Boy equivalents from 1940 who just read this and says, oh, well, you know, he's just really wrapped up in his grief and he's not thinking about his new wife because he's dealing with ghosts of the past but like Mm. he's a fucking asshole let's just make it clear i mean again it's shown in the same way in the next scene whenever they go on the beach and jasper discovers the shack and you know maxim's like ah i told you not to go there and he like gets he just shuts down completely and it's like but again she's like oh it was rebecca's cabin so he just can't bear to see it that lack of communication though (laughs) holy fuck this part is so off-putting from a contemporary perspective because he is irrationally angry at her decision to chase after his dog to this cottage Mm -hmm. and when she comes back up he is storming off like a fucking child she chases after him he yells at her and then she apologizes this is classic domestic abuse. It's so... Uh, and, and honestly, like, when it comes to this new adaptation, because there actually have been two, one in the 70s, one in the 90s for TV, which I haven't seen yet, but I am interested to see if they ad- adjust any of that, or oh, because I it's obviously not. still a period piece, if they keep it the same. Oh, I, I desperately want them to make Army Hammer as awful as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can watch Call Me By Your Name, and this as like simpatico pieces that speak to each other. <laughs> where, where, yeah, where he's going after people that are like way younger than him. Yes, and <laughs> taking advantage of them. Oh, what are we doing? Okay, moving <laughs> on. I like Call Me By Your Name, but yes, we've talked about no, the problem. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so clearly she is like, I need to get down to business and figure out what the fuck is going on here. So she asks Crawley about the cottage and this man, Ben, who is played by Leonard Carey, that she meets there. And more or less what we learn is that the cottage is where Rebecca spent a lot of time. It's also near where she drowned. And this is the first time that our heroine really opens up. So she confesses that she's got this inferiority complex about Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And Crawley is the only nice person in this movie because he's he more or less says you know what you're actually pretty great you just need to kind of calm down (laughs) (laughs) yeah in 1940 speak yeah for sure your drinking game for this episode is 1940 by the way folks but then again when she when she like flat out asked what was rebecca really like he's like well i i I suppose she was the most beautiful creature i ever saw um i think maybe the word creature is important there because he's like she's actually not even a human being she's a huge monster (laughs) yeah (laughs) she eschews humanity and also look over there (laughs) context clues you nameless wench (laughs) i do like to i think there's like a magazine on the table and it's called beauty the magazine for smart women (laughs) oh boy oh boy yeah um God bless this poor woman who is doing everything she can to try to please her husband, her new husband. So she orders a dress and she does her hair differently because she's clearly been (laughs) flustered by Beatrice's comment. So she dresses up. She comes down because they're going to look through their honeymoon footage. And he 
he doesn't even compliment her. He's just like, why did you do this? I mean, it's because... (laughs) She's she's dressing in a way that's more like Rebecca, which is what she's trying to do, yeah. but that's the opposite reason of why he married her. But again, he hasn't told her that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, heaven forbid that your wife dress like the lady of the house, which you're about to yell at her for not being, because this is where the stupid China Cupid saga comes back up. Oh my God. And he dresses her down for not behaving like the mistress of the house. I wrote this down. He said, don't be such a little idiot, darling. I think that's actually one of the most famous lines from both the book and the film. Because when I was reading reviews, when I was reading people's analyses of these, the little idiot line, I think, really hits home for people just how much of a villain Maxim is. But okay, so we get that, but then we, this is the gaslighting thing for me. It's when he, so, um, so we get this good lighting where it's kind of the thing where it's like, it's dark around their faces, but like around their eyes, it's a band of light. Mm-hmm. But he does this thing where he goes, I wonder if I did a very selfish thing in marrying you. So then he tries to make her feel guilty mm-hmm. for, like, him being angry at her. And this is this is when I put, in all caps, Jesus, he sucks. <laughs> yeah, he's so manipulative. And it's great because Laurence Olivier is really good in this role. Like, mm-hmm. he's hissably bad, but he's not overdoing it. Like, right. you, you could watch this and be like, oh, wow, he's just a really sad man. But the truth is, is that the way he's being played is so calm and collected that you can almost understand why she's falling for all this bullshit. Well, also because if if they get divorced, which I'm sure that didn't look good back then, um, mm-hmm. she also has nothing. Right. I mean, she's got to stick with this. Yeah. <laughs> she's trapped. <laughs> it's just funny though, right? Because he later confesses, oh, his first marriage went to shit in like four days and we're what, on day three that they've been at Manderley and <laughs> he, things are going to shit he's like waiting for the other shoe to drop like it happened with my first wife hey maxim guess what maybe it's you maybe it's you maxim <laughs> maybe you're the problem oh he sucks he's so bad i do like the contrast though where they start the footage of the honeymoon and they're so in love and they're so happy and they're you know reflecting back on what they're seeing on screen and then after all of this they go back to watching and there's no commentary and it's like no, we just yeah. don't care about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, Maxim leaves for London, and he leaves her a passive-aggressive note that says he thinks that she could probably do with some time and she won't miss him. <laughs> what fucking a fucking asshole. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and then she thinks that she sees a figure in the West Wing window. So this is another special effect. This is a miniature, and the, the Mrs. Danvers closing the window is actually an eight-inch-tall puppet. Oh, mini Danver. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, you can do like a slow motion shot and you can tell that it's like a it, it's a weird little marionette puppet. So they really just did not actually have a Manderley. Like, yeah, <laughs> they were building it in special effects. Exactly. Pretty that much. I mean, crazy. the interior I and mean, a lot of it, too, is just like sets on studios. But like the, the interiors are there. But I mean, again, even like the floors are real, <laughs> but not the ceilings. <laughs> well, they're one step above a Star Wars movie then. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, so before she can really go to investigate, this is where she overhears a conversation between Mrs. Danvers and a strange man who is very quickly revealed to be the roguish Mr. Jack Favell, played by George Sanders. So this is, do you know what he's, well, at least what maybe most of us know him as? Uh, he looks familiar, but I nope. couldn't place him. It's not a look thing. He is the voice of Shere Khan in Disney's The Jungle Book. Shut up. Really? Not, no, not joking. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now I get it. I can hear it. <laughs> yep. So Mischief of Ill introduces himself as Rebecca's cousin. And I put that in air quotes, but I realize he probably actually is yeah. your cousin, and they were just still fucking. Yeah, because it was okay to fuck your first cousin. That wasn't incest back then. Mm-hmm. Times they have a change. <laughs> <laughs> no, Karen, he's your cousin. <laughs> mean Girls reference in Rebecca. I love it. I mean, really, <laughs> this movie is Mean Girls, too. Uh, there's a lot of bad, toxic female friendship, for sure. Yeah. Well, not even friendship. Yeah, just female <laughs> relationships. Female, like people dynamics so favel is a very interesting character he is so casual with mrs danvers he calls her danny which we'll come to learn is actually what rebecca called her which i think kind of like again like this kind of androgynous name um because obviously danny can be male or female Mm -hmm. which will add to her queer coding for me sure that's a good pickup i hadn't thought of that Mm mm-hmm and Mrs. Danvers is kind of like, thanks for stopping by. Get the fuck out. I do love that he goes out the window. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, again, Manderley is this regal place. And I read this somewhere where it was like, yeah, him just being able to, like, hop out a window. It's like such like a, it's almost like a rape of Manderley. Yeah, it, it because it's not proper decorum. And it immediately cues us to the fact, like, this guy is not all together. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, no one should be hopping in and out of the window of a palatial estate. Yeah. <laughs> Use the door, Dick. (laughs) So at this point, here we go, Trace. Buckle up because we're going to get a tour of the West Wing courtesy of Mrs. Danvers who shows us the loveliest room in Manderley. This, okay, this whole fucking sequence is bizarre and it is so, because again, we haven't seen Mrs. Danvers be lively. Mm -mm. And this flip of a switch with her character is just insane. So yeah, so basically like, the, the second Mrs. DeWinter, like, goes into Rebecca's room. We're, like, the 67-minute mark now. So, we've got, like, we're a little over halfway done with this movie. Okay. Um, there, she goes in, but there's, like, these curtains that divide the room. Yes. And the way that we're reintroduced to Mrs. Danvers is her, like, in fucking silhouette mm-hmm. coming through these sheer curtains. I don't like the term predatory lesbian, but this mm-hmm. is definitely predatory. No, hey, so let, let's go with that. Uh, let's start. All right, so... Daphne du Maurier's sexuality has been debated over the ever since she's been alive. She mm-hmm. was married to a man, but it had been rumored that she had had female sexual partners. I don't think it's even rumors because it seems pretty confirmed that she was in relationships with both Ellen Doubleday and Gertrude Lawrence. Yeah, basically she had the relationships, but I think that she just denied being bisexual. Like when someone said, oh, are you bisexual? She's like, no, I'm not. Well, she's definitely not a lesbian because she did write in one of her letters, by God and by Christ, if anyone should call that sort of love by that unattractive word that begins with L, I'd tear their guts out. So she had actually explained to a few trusted people in her own unique sl- her own unique slant on her sexuality. She said that her personality comprised two distinct people, the loving wife and mother, which is the side she showed the world, and the lover, which she said, and I quote, was a decidedly male energy. That side she hid from virtually everyone and the power behind her artistic creativity. And it was the power behind her artistic creativity. So you can actually wonder if Rebecca, like the character, is a bit of an autobiographical character for Du Maurier. And again, this yeah. is all, you know. Sure. Speculation. Speculation. But it's also kind of there in Mrs. Danvers because because Du Maurier, and again, we, we can't assign a, a, a sexuality to her. You know, we can't say she's bisexual if she didn't claim that herself. But. There were people that thought that she was. And so some people think that that, that that 
vehement opposition to being labeled bisexual or calling herself bisexual or a lesbian um, unveiled a homophobic fear inside of herself. So she had this internalized homophobia, mm-hmm. which in Hitchcock's film is really apparent in the Mrs. Danvers character because she is a predatory lesbian. And I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not a good, it's weird. Like I love this portrayal, but I also see the problematic elements within it. I don't to be honest so i will 100 percent read mrs danvers as a predatory lesbian it's mostly that i don't find the predatory elements present in this film like i don't think she's actually trying to groom or go after the second mrs de winter Mm. and i know that some people do read this as like oh well she's going to try to make a move on this woman or she's going to try to get her to die by suicide. I, I think I think I view her as literally predatory in that like she wants to harm this woman as opposed to the typical definition of predatory lesbian, which is oh I'm go I'm trying to get this woman and like bed her. Right. So in I guess in that regard, yeah, I agree with you. I think that she has ill will towards this woman. That much is pretty obvious. Yeah. I think that I see her lesbian ism as unrelated to her evilness and therefore in my mind she's and she's a good example of a queer villain because her villainy does not come from her lesbianism i yes so yeah it's not with an issue of her not accepting her own lesbianism her evilness comes from losing the love of her life yeah and possibly having to repress her own sexuality so like you said being unable to acknowledge who she truly is because one thing you can't be a servant and be in love with your mistress like the head of the household because that's a class conflict particularly back in these times and then also the idea that like we keep hearing about the gossip that troubled or followed rebecca and manderley so we skipped over it when they were looking at the honeymoon footage maxim takes a huge offense when the second mrs de winter mentions oh she didn't want people to gossip and he's like gossiping who's gossiping clearly this was an issue about rebecca's dalliances with i think men and women because later on we'll find out that rebecca They never name it, but it seems clear that she was like a deviant sexual person. And I read that as she was sleeping with men and women, whether that means bisexual or pansexual, whatever. Like, right. These words were not used a lot back in those days. But you're on something there. But yeah, like like Danvers had to repress her sexuality because, again, the only person if we're to believe that there was a relationship, like a sexual relationship between Danvers and Rebecca, or maybe if it wasn't <laughs> sexual, but it was a very clearly, there was an emotional connection there. That was love At minimum. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, with Rebecca dead, she literally doesn't have someone else, you know, like I, no. she, she can't go out to the lesbian bars and Crowley or whatever the fuck area mm-hmm. of London they're in. <laughs> yeah. She's stuck on this fucking estate. She's gotta look after the staff. And so it's really she's really a tragic figure in that respect. Now yeah. she's still the villain of this film. Sure. And because I mean again, like the second Mrs. De Winter has really done nothing to do to earn this treatment. It's really unfortunate, but I also empathize with Mrs. Danvers. And then we get this scene where and, and this is the scene that would have that should have alarmed the the, the Hayes office because and apparently it did. Like, they they tried to get this cut, and apparently somehow they managed to sneak it through. I, I don't know what happened, but yeah, so we get this thing where she pulls out this fucking chinchilla coat, and she rubs it all over the second Mrs. De Winter's face. That's something in and of itself. Sure. Touch my fur, feel my fur, 
Oh, and it, oh my god, the carpet matches the drapes, my dear. Feel it. <laughs> I mean, even when she talks about how Rebecca would get out of the bath and then she would sit in front of the mirror and she would comb her hair 25 times, it's like, was she naked? Oh, probably. Yes. <laughs> And then we get the negligee. So yeah, she has this ne- this black negligee laying on the bed because she just has it in case Rebecca's ghost decides to come back and fill it. She hasn't touched that room in a year, Trace. Yeah, I bet she hasn't touched that room in a year. <laughs> but like she runs her hand and like through it and she's like, oh, she goes, did you ever see anything so delicate? She runs her hand through it and she goes, look, you can see my ham. It's her, f- it's the equivalent of like in porn when I'll use gay, I'll, I'll use gay porn okay. as an example of like when like, you know, the, the, the young man sniffs his lover's underwear. That's what this scene is, but like filtered through a 1940 lens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very much like it's the most sensual object. She also talks about the underwear like closet that rebecca had Mm -hmm. to which i was like oh man rebecca i'm a woman after my own heart oh you collect underwear in like ridiculous proportions there have been quite a few um mrs danvers masturbatory sessions in that room probably that closet but like the the fact that we're emphasizing undergarments and nudity and sensuality like this poor woman is just so hung up on her dead lover yeah and but that's again where you're reading like i mean again in the book mrs danvers has a bit of a different backstory she's more of a motherly figure for rebecca but it's interesting that like the writers picked up on that and hitchcock felt the need to emphasize that queerness more more so than demoria did in her novel right yeah and you know as as i mentioned hitchcock is no stranger to introducing queerness and sort of deviancy into his narratives and i think there's always an interesting argument to be made about whether they're positive or negative or mixed but i mean we've got strangers on a train rope and of course that classic psycho as well Mm -hmm. as potentially the lady vanishes as potential films that we can look at in the future that interrogate the notion of queerness and often associate it with villainous characters so uh yeah i mean are we good with that scene we are good so this is all very overwhelming for the new mrs de winters and she i mean this poor woman she's just having a breakdown every five minutes at this point but she does manage to rally so she you know she makes her claim I am Mrs. De Winter now. She asks Mrs. Danvers to start getting rid of Rebecca's old shit that's just lying around everywhere. Stop hoarding Rebecca's garbage. That, I mean, I and I'm sure it's been done in drag before, but I really do want, like, a drag, like, I am Mrs. De Winter now. Oh, my God. Someone cue us if that is out there, <laughs> slash peaches if you're listening. Yes. Know. So this is where she puts her foot down. She's gonna bring some life back to fucking Manderley. She wants a costume ball. So when Maxim comes back, she will not take no for an answer. But then she does the stupidest thing she could possibly do. And she, she listens, listens to, to Mrs. Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wait. So did you know that this was clearly a setup? Oh my, from the first <laughs> second. Yes. Like, so bitch, what are you doing? Don't listen to her. There's like a good five or six, it's 28 chapters I think the novel is, and there's a good five or six chapters devoted to like the preparation for this ball and its aftermath. It's delicious. I actually, I do find that the runtime of this film is a little bit long, mostly Mm. in the end. We'll get there. It might uh, make you feel better to know that the Netflix one is 10 minutes shorter. Eh, Okay. All this to say, 
I would have cared for a little bit more of this. Like I was fascinated by anticipating how badly this was going to go down for her, yep. but then also feeling like the it's just a little too abbreviated in the aftermath. I wanted to sit and stew with the implications and see how Maxim tries to explain this behavior to his guests. So the, it is abbreviated compared to the novel, but the problem is that we don't get an interaction between her and Maxim between him saying, go away, like go upstairs and change to the boat um, that, that right. crashes. So it's mostly her in her room, again, freaking out about, why did I do this? Is this why he's mad at me? Blah, blah, blah. And then Beatrice oh comes in and goes, oh, you looked like Rebecca. Like, that's that's what that was. <laughs> yeah. I will say I'm I'm constantly surprised in this in particular because we see a lot of kind of doppelganger. Like, it's a Hitchcock thing. We'll see it very much in Vertigo. But it's a trope in these kinds of films where you marry someone who looks identical to what the dead person looks like. It always takes me a little by surprise that we're told that she doesn't look like Rebecca. Rebecca was a brunette. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes wonder, like, oh, is that a bit of a mistake? Like, wouldn't it have been better to have her be a younger version of Rebecca? And everybody is just constantly reminded of that fact. But then it really would make sense for Maxim to have married her because i don't think he ever would have married someone who did look like rebecca uh, mm, okay that is fair very fair yeah but yeah but so okay, we get this whole thing where she makes this dress blah 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 uh, yeah. i'm sorry she orders this dress <laughs> this the reveal like the, the suspense like, okay again this this is not like a scary movie you know but no. this scene of her walking down so tense <laughs> it is so suspenseful because you're just waiting like oh my god like because he keeps cutting back from her from her smiling beaming face mm -hmm. to the backs of beatrice and giles and maxim and he it goes on and on mm -hmm. and on until finally she says something <laughs> yeah maxim? and then he just shuts her ass down Oh, he takes one look at her and he's ordering her back upstairs. <laughs> it's not even what the fuck are you wearing? It's get out of my sight immediately. So she ends up seeking out Mrs. Danvers, who is, of course, in the West Wing having a good laugh, probably masturbating. Yeah. And okay, th this because this is like another Danvers monologue, and this this is the most evil that this character is in this movie. Because yeah, she tries to convince the second Mrs. De Winter to jump out of the window to her death, which I think is really intense. Again, for a movie in the '40s to have a character like doing like trying to make someone else commit suicide, it's uh, also such a great alternative to murder, right? Oh yeah, I mean, bear in mind that we're on the cusp of the breakout of film noir. So you could very easily read Mrs. Danvers as a kind of femme fatale character mm -hmm. where she doesn't have the kind of arsenal of weapons that men would have at this time, but she does have a silver tongue. And if you can convince that woman to jump out the window... All of your problems are solved. So the first thing she says, she goes, I watched you go down just as I watched her a year ago, even in the same dress, and you couldn't compare. Ouch. So what she says to her, she goes, you're overwrought, madam. I've opened a window for you. Some air would do you good. And as she goes over, she's like fucking crying her eyes out because mm -hmm. her husband just like tore her ass down publicly. She whispers, again, the framing of this is so good because it's like yes. right up on Fontaine's face with yeah. Danvers, like, you know, right in her ear. Why don't you go? Why don't you leave Manderley? He doesn't need you. He's got his memories. He doesn't want you. He wants to be alone again with her. You've nothing to stay for. You've nothing to live for, really, have you? Look down there. It's easy, isn't it? Why don't you go? Why don't you? Go on. Go on. 
don't be afraid, and she almost fucking does it, and then boom, we get the fireworks. Oh, yeah, the timing. This, this to me, is the climax of the film. I know we're supposed to be very interested in Maxim's monologue where he talks about the truth of what happened with Rebecca. Couldn't give two shits. This is the peak of the film for me. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it definitely is. Because, because, again, we find Mrs. Danvers and, and her relationship with the second Mrs. De Winter so much more interesting than whatever yes. is going on between her and Maxim. Yeah. And particularly that Maxim and those dumb men. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's too. Really, the movie does kind of fall off a cliff for me after Maxim's confession. I mean, that's maybe a bit harsh, but it's definitely less interesting because, again, we yeah. don't get... Well, all the, all the mystery is gone by that point. It's almost, again, like the relationships where it's like, oh, once the mystery and intrigue is gone, it's just a regular domestic relationship. That's yeah. what this movie becomes after Maxim's confession. Yeah, you're really just kind of waiting for the the truth to come out and the end to come. Yeah. Sure. I do think it's important here, too, that Mrs. Danvers literally says the words, Rebecca can't be beaten. Even in death, this woman's hold on everyone is still there. Mm-hmm. But it's significant to me because Maxim himself will also say that in just a couple of minutes. Like, mm-hmm. this idea that Rebecca is so powerful that even in death, she can literally command the fates of all of these living people who live in this house. I mean, and that's entirely what she was trying to do. She was trying to beat Maxim with her death. Like, that's... it. It's such a complex character. And again, like, like you said, that we never even get to see Rebecca or meet Rebecca, but we know so little and yet so much about her. Mm-hmm. It is insane. And I, I, I want to see Rebecca, but I also don't because they would ruin the allure, right? Oh, I'm so glad that we don't. Like, I'm terrified in this new film that we're going to see a picture or a portrait or something like that. And it's going to be, nope. So the 1997 uh, miniseries apparently does have a flashback with Rebecca. Oh, my God. Yeah, Just, I know. No. I know. <laughs> like, I, no. I, I, I'm going to watch it before the Patreon recording for the Netflix one, and I'll report back. <laughs> okay. Will do. I, I shall eagerly obey your report, sir. Streaming on Amazon Prime in case anyone wants to watch it with me. <laughs> watch party. <laughs> All right. So, yes, the second Mrs. De Winter is saved by the news of a shipwreck, and she goes out to the beach. It's very foggy. It's still a little mysterious. There's people just kind of milling about, but it's revealed that Rebecca's missing boat has also been found. So there's this convenient shipwreck, but then it also leads to the discovery of Rebecca's missing boat, and they discover a body inside it. Although I don't think we cover this right now it comes out in a bit yeah it, it, it comes about pretty quickly but i mean it's it's not really important i mean yeah. it is important but like <laughs> <laughs> whose body is it who cares Nobody no one really gives a cares. shit <laughs> no so she goes to this beach cottage and in there she finds maxim and it's a big roundabout to do but he eventually confesses that he killed rebecca and it's because he hated her almost from the beginning. And, okay, this is another good mo- acting moment for Fontaine, though, because she looks so deliriously happy, but also horrified. Because it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yay, I don't have to worry about Rebecca. But B, oh, wait, do I have to worry about him now? Because he just killed his first wife. <laughs> yeah, and even that is just a passing flight of fancy. Like, her delirium at being relieved of the memory of Rebecca is such that she's like, cool, well, that bitch has no power over you. How are we going to live our lives? I, I also love this reveal, though. So, I mean, because I, I asked you before you watched this, I was like, do you know what happens? Like, do you, did, did you have an inkling that Rebecca was secretly a crazy person? 
I remember thinking that she wasn't everything that people had made her out to be, but I didn't think that the depths to which she would go were this crazy. Damn it, I'm trying not to say crazy. Yeah, yeah. And we don't truly know the depths of what it was because he even mentioned something where it's like, she told me, again, four days into our into our honeymoon, she, she told me the truth about herself. She stood on these rocks and she laughed at me and mm-hmm. she said... Hey, you can't divorce me now. It's going to ruin you because he cares so much about the honor of his family name and shit. I love it. I love it. She's using his fucking bourgeois yes! patriarchy against him. So she's like, I'll be the perfect wife, and but I also get an apartment in London and I get, I get to bring people over to the house and fuck them whenever I want. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, and I'll keep man, I'll make Manderley the most popular place in the world. I mean, this is also a place that we failed to mention. They have weekly visits from the public <laughs> to tour Manderley. <laughs> yeah, we never see it, but no. it's important to know. And this whole confession, I mean, I, I, again, this is where you could have done a flashback and they considered doing that. But what Hitchcock chooses to do instead is move the camera around with Maxim's narration. I love and it. the camera is acting as Rebecca's POV from the <laughs> night that she died. Yeah, it's uh. amazing. It, it, I don't love a lot of the personal stuff with Hitchcock, but this is... 100% one of those things where you cannot deny his power as a director. He just knows how to visually capture things and make these moments land. It's a really great scene. And again, it's one of those where translating from from page to screen, like, I can see someone being really lazy with this today, and we'll, we'll find out oh. soon. <laughs> and it just done so well. But this is also where we get the major change, where he didn't, in the book, he shoots her ass in the heart. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it's it's what you want from yes. this reveal. It's what you need because on it still doesn't excuse his behavior, but it would at least to a point be like, okay, well maybe I get that now because he doesn't want to tell his new wife that he's a murderer. He doesn't want to go to jail, blah blah blah. Like it doesn't excuse his behavior, but it makes it slightly, ever so slightly more understandable. I think more believable too, because when he says, you know, oh, I hit her, but then she fell on the ground and she just lay there for a while. I was like, really? Are you lying to us right now? Because that doesn't sound realistic at all. It's a really, really weak excuse. And and there's also in this Criterion Blu-ray a whole note that Selznick had to write to his assistant to (laughs) tell... I love this. He wrote a note to his assistant to write Daphne du Maurier... (laughs) saying hey we had to change the ending but it was the Hayes code can you please tell her not to bash the film publicly because it's going to be really bad for us trace i'm not talking to alfred hitchcock right now but could you just write him a note that tells him i'm very unhappy with the way that he's changed this ending <laughs> the scene is great but i i do think though that because he didn't directly kill her it takes so much and i said this earlier it takes this any suspense out of the third act to where it's kind of like a wet fart where you're like oh, i'm like well, let's just get this on with let's let's go yeah, so it's important to note that one of the people that she was schlopping was Favel. So cousin Favel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the day of her death, she one of the things that set him off, because we also have to remember that Maxim was very angry. He has anger management problems. So she had told him that she was pregnant. It wasn't his baby. And that she was going to take so much glee in raising this child that was not his to eventually inherit Manderley. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention this too. Whenever he confesses, he goes, you thought I loved Rebecca? You thought that? I hated her. And there's this dramatic music cue. And I wrote in my notes, in all caps, dude, how could she possibly know that? (laughs) Yeah, you've given her zero clues and iced her out at every possible moment. Uh, It's the worst. Anyway, I'm sorry, continue. 
It's fine. So obviously Maxim is freaking out because he's spiraling now that they found Rebecca's true body because uh, we didn't mention it earlier, but he misidentified another body, just some random woman so that he could, you know, do away with it and put it to bed, move on. So this delights the new Mrs. De Winter because they're in it together, right? Like they've got this secret he's finally opened up and Rebecca doesn't have a voice to go against their story. So he goes to the police station. It's fine. There is an (laughs) inquest because he has still misidentified this body. And this is where we start to descend into a bit of a court case. So yeah, I mean, whatever. There's witness testimonies. The only important one is the boat maker who's like, um, look, this boat was scuttled. It didn't sink. (laughs) I mean, it did sink, but it didn't sink by accident. (laughs) Yeah, they try to bring Bob from the cottage in and he's like, Uh, (laughs) and you're like okay good character thanks there is some good foreshadowing that he does earlier when he's talking to the the second mrs de winter he said something like you know oh she's at the bottom she's not coming back is she she's at the bottom but i don't remember but does he mention something about how how she was mean to him don't think so that was cut out then because there is a part when, he, when when the second mrs de winter first meets ben in the cottage he mentioned something about like you're not gonna tell her i was here were you she doesn't like it when i'm here he does say that yes okay yeah but it's kind of foreshadowing like oh maybe she wasn't super nice yeah right okay but he is acting a little bit unusual to the extent like he's almost presented as an ominous figure the first time that we meet him. So he doesn't seem entirely trustworthy when he says, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. She didn't like it that I was here. So He's kind of like the harbinger in your horror movie, right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so we go through various stages where, you know, Maxim pretty much almost admits everything by getting super pissed off in court and then i read this as the second mrs de winter's fakes fainting so that she can get him out of it but it doesn't exactly play that way no it, i mean it, it, i read it as it was an actual faint because again when the guy says no this boat was deliberately scuttled it throws a wrench in the case and so she's right. like oh shit Ugh. <laughs> Anyway, so they reconvene in kind of uh, closed quarters, and this is where Favel really goes to town, spinning this story that Maxim has murdered Rebecca. He calls in Mrs. Danvers. She ends up um, confirming. Wait, wait, I do have one thing, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he he blackmails Maxim, and he goes, I'd like your advice on how to live comfortably without hard work. And I wrote, the OG Jill Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for fans and to not do a lot of work. <laughs> But yeah, so sorry, he calls in Mrs. Danvers and she's like, well, she had this doctor. Yeah, she had a doctor. And so they're like, all right, well, let's go and talk to this doctor. So they do. And they discover that Rebecca was, in fact, not pregnant. That was a big old lie. This is another big change, though. So in the novel, the second Mrs. DeWinter goes with him. And so she's there for all this. But what they decide to do in the movie, and apparently it's because they thought it would be more suspenseful this way, is yeah. to have the second Mrs. DeWinter stay at Manderley to await the news. <laughs> Nothing more suspenseful than waiting at home for the news. <laughs> this is a creative decision I do not agree with, because basically Joan Fontaine is now off screen for about 20 minutes. Yeah, it's like the rest of the movie until the very end. Yeah, it's like, oh, cool, we're spending time with Maxim and Favelle and that other guy. I do love, though, Mrs. Danvers' testimony where she's like, love was a game to Rebecca, only a game. She used to sit and laugh at the lot of you, which is why I always thought that Rebecca was asexual, because even though Danvers is saying, yeah, she's laughing at all you men, I just thought it was because she was just she wasn't a sexual person because she couldn't she couldn't feel love like she couldn't do that. So 
it was all just a game to her no matter what, even if it was with a woman. I see it more as she thinks that men are dumb, but it doesn't mean that she can't derive pleasure from them. Right. That makes sense. So... All this to say, the doctor says, no, Rebecca was not pregnant. That was a big old lie, but she did have cancer. So she was about to die. And this is almost classic horror movie villainry where you're about to die. So you enact a horrible revenge on people by more or less implicating them in your death in the hope that they go down for it. So more or less, this was a murder plot that Rebecca was trying to instigate, and it almost works, except for the fact that this doctor confirms, no, it actually was cancer, which puts the kibosh on Favel's plan. So they cannot pin this on Maxim because he can just easily spin it as, oh, well, she was dying, so that's why she killed herself. Yep. So good to know. Cool. But Maxim has a bad feeling, so he and Frank race back to Manderley, and Favelle, in the interim, has called Danvers to announce the bad news that Maxim will not be going away, that the happy couple will get to stay at Manderley and live out their days, and when Maxim and Frank get back to the house, they discover that there is a fire on the horizon. I guess this might be the suspenseful bit, though, because we do get that shot of Mrs. Danvers walking around the house with the candle, Mm -hmm. and she goes to the second Mrs. DeWinter, and so it... It's almost like for a second she's going to light her on fire. A little bit. I guess maybe that that is the suspense they're talking about, which I think is kind of cool. But then she doesn't do that. <laughs> well, no. And I find my problem is, is that they pull up in the car and the house is obviously in flames. But almost immediately you see the second Mrs. DeWinter holding Jasper and just kind of walking in front of the house. Like there's no suspense as to whether or not she's made it out of this fiery blaze at this point. You're like, oh, okay. Well, the house is just on fire, but everybody seems okay, except, of course, Mrs. Danvers, who is glimpsed walking through the West Wing, and she just kind of is hanging out in the fiery ruins of this perfect room, and then the roof falls in, clothes on the embroidered pillow with the R, Rebecca, you're done. So, uh, also, Citizen Kane would steal that, again, you're closing in on a personal object of your protagonist. With an uh, an R, whereas in Citizen Kane, it's the sled with Rosebud. <gasps> the R stands. It's not actually Rosebud. It's, <laughs> it's Rebecca. for Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, obviously we have to kill Mrs. Danvers because she's the villain of the movie. But it's, it's also kind of like, oh, you got to kill your lesbian, I guess. Oh, sure. I mean, there's two things that this movie could not have. It could not have Maxim be a killer and get away with it. So he in the film, he's not a killer. And then you also can't have this quote unquote deviant lifestyle go unpunished. So she would either have to be rescued and turned into a proper heterosexual or burn her down. Well, and that's, again, also an an invention of the screenplay, because in the book, it ends with them just pulling up to Manderley and it's on it's in flames. Like Mrs. Danvers is gone. We don't know where she is. Mm-hmm. It's assumed she set the fire, but we don't know. Like, the book just cuts off. So right. it's just one of those things where it's like, oh man, like, we, we got to kill this bitch. All right. I mean, it, it arguably is more satisfying because she tried to get our protagonist to kill herself. But again, if you're reading her as queer, just, it just to me, it reads as, oh, we got to kill that lesbian. Oh, for sure. Which again is kind of like, hmm, so what's going to happen in this new version? Well, at least we get Chris and Scott Thomas playing Mrs. Danvers. Right. It's going to be good. So 
to lead us out, I'm actually going to bring back a version of the old games that we used to play, Trace. Okay. So I would like to play speculation about the new film with you. So you have three categories, and I would like you to tell me if you think it will be more or less in the new version. So do you think there will be more or less sex in the new film? More, but it's PG-13, so it's going to be very chaste. Okay. Yeah, because it should be noted that there's no sex in this movie at all. Like, not even kissing. Yeah, I, I, th- I, I think we're going to get, like, some beach play. But, like, I don't think we're going to get actual fucking in this movie. <laughs> ah, yes, the coveted PG-13 beach play. <laughs> Love it. Okay, second question. Do you think there will be more or less murder? Because there's no haze code. More. Oh, yeah. Well, no, yeah. If they don't have Maxim kill her, that's... <laughs> I think it's a missed opportunity. Such a missed opportunity. Yeah. No, they're going to fight. Yes, more murder for sure. Okay. Yeah. It'll also be interesting to see if Mrs. Danvers, if they do try to recreate this convincing someone to nearly die by suicide, or will they actually have her make an attempt? Like, I'll be interested to see if Mrs. Danvers goes to push her. Oh, see, I don't know if I like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's. Mm-hmm. I- Uh, What's your last one? So the last one, and this is the fun one. Do you think there will be more or less queerness? So I hope there's more queerness. I don't think there's going to be more queerness. Uh, You think they're going to straight wash this? It's really weird. Like after, I was really excited for this new one because I'm like, oh my God, Ben Wheatley doing Daphne du Maurier. It's going to be so fun. The cast is really good. Yeah, I mean, the cast is great. I think it looks like visually very good. The problem is, after watching the Hitchcock one, I'm like, well, this was so fucking faithful, minus the aforementioned, like, two or three things. Right. I don't know what else they're going to do, and especially now that I know there were two other TV adaptations, which I'm sure were maybe a bit more closer, because they're they're longer, I'm sure. Okay. So, I'm intrigued. I almost hope that he kind of does the Hitchcock thing and, like, does a bit more with it like maybe like branches off from the source material a bit doesn't look like that's what's happening no but yeah i don't i don't know and and you know like like we've said i'm not a big fan of saying oh what's the point do we need this but if it is just another straight up retelling i'm very much kind of like huh why why are we doing this (laughs) good luck sir i'm interested to see how you try to improve upon mr hitchcock's work and and that's the thing, you know. I, I'm I'm viewing this more as a readaptation of the novel. It's not a remake of Hitchcock's film. Right. The problem is Hitchcock did kind of do the mostly definitive version of this. So yeah, there's not a lot of new things that you could try to do if you were just adapting the book. Like you kind, if you're going to do something different, it's going to have to be different. off of the source material or yeah. different from the source material, rather. Absolutely, but. As it stands, I mean, I feel the same way you do. I, I gave this a four out of five. I just, I do think that the, the change with Maxim really kind of kills that the last like 20 to 30 minutes of this movie. But yeah. up until like from the confession and everything before, I was like hooked into this movie from beginning to oh, end. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really fascinating. From when it began, I like kind of like did this thing where I was like, ooh, because the narration is like straight, like, straight reading from the first chapter oh, yeah. of this book. Yeah. It's so good. So I really, really enjoyed this. And I, I hope that listeners either got to listen to it and experience it, or they at least got to go out and like they found it to, they found some way to watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, this film is so watchable. I could not believe that I was watching an 80 year old movie. Oh, yeah. This movie feels 
shockingly contemporary. And I, I don't think that it hurts that we can so much more easily identify the abuse and the gaslighting because I actually think that that makes it a more compelling watch because you realize there are multiple villains in this movie and most of them are men. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't I don't look at Mrs. Danvers as a, a very traditional villain. Well, I didn't mention this at the top, but I do think it's important to note that one of the co-writers is a woman and it's actually Hitchcock's assistant who would later go on to be a producer at MGM. Wow. Okay. Well, that's so. really cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if like like it was like she had like a huge say, but I mean, again, she's it's weird. Uh, th- there's two men credited for the adaptation, which is basically means that they didn't write the script; they just kind of directed the story, like of how, how it would go. But then there's two screenwriting credits: one for Joan Harrison and then one for Robert E. Sherwood. So, I mean, again, it's it's a straightforward adaptation, but I do wonder if maybe her feminine presence like influenced in, in some way. Right. And did you say her name? Uh, yeah, Joan Harrison. Okay, cool. But yeah, no, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, and um, I liked it. Anything left to say on it? Uh, I think that this is a classic. I think it's a great introduction to Hitchcock, so if people haven't watched a ton of his films, this is a good precedent. And I'm very excited that it not only held up, but I'm also excited to see what a new version could look like. Uh, great. So... Before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to get in touch with us, you can support. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Horror Queers Facebook group to hang out with other listeners. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. If you want Horror Queers merchandise, please check out our store at TeePublic. Just search for Horror Queers on TeePublic.com. And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at Patreon.com slash Horror Queers. We are now in October. Well, we've been in October. Uh, so we've had a couple things released already. We've got minisodes on Ratchet and HBO's Books of Blood. We'll also um, have... Oh, we I, actually, by this point, I think we've also released an episode on The Haunting of Bly Manor, the entire first season on Netflix. I'm sorry, the entire season on Netflix. And as we've played a couple times in this episode already, we will have a full-length episode on Ben Wheatley's readaptation of Rebecca, which will be coming out next week. And to close out the month, we'll have an audio commentary on Halloween H2O, just in time for Halloween. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe, speaking of Halloween, what are we covering next week? Well... We're getting closer to the big jack-o'-lantern, so we might as well really go for it, Trace. We are going to check out 2007's Trick or Treat, because it's the best goddamn anthology that there is. I agree, and I'm super excited to talk about Trick or Treat. That's one of those two where it had such a weird production history, because it was like made in 2007, but it wasn't released for two years. <laughs> so made in 2005? No, 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 no. It was made in 07. It was released in 09. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense, because I think I got confused a while back about when that film actually came out. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those ones that was, it was, it was like All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, where it was like shelled for a long time for like, I guess, maybe studio bankruptcy re- reasons. Oh, well, I'm interested to dig into that, because I don't know how you could look at that film and not be like, money, I can make so much money off of this. 100% agreed. But we'll have to stop that conversation for now. And... On that note, we can cross out Rebecca. Yes, and cross out horror queers.
made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>